My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects Podcast. Hey there. Welcome to another episode of History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects. Okay, before we press on with our story of the Mormons, we have a couple of objects that we have to cover. I didn't initially plan to cover these objects because they didn't play a huge role in early Mormon history. But as they play a big role today, I thought we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on them now. So let's place the Mormon history story on the shelf for just a bit. Just to recap where we are, The Missouri Mormons are settling into Caldwell County. Remember, that was the county established just for them in Missouri. In Kirtland, the temple is built, and in Europe, the Mormon church is spreading like mustard seeds blowing in the wind. I should tease future episodes and say that cracks are starting to form in the Kirtland leadership. We'll discuss those and continue the story in a few episodes, but first, let's talk about a number of movements gaining groundswell in the 1830s. First, there was the anti-slavery movement. Just to provide a few bullet points that were taking place around this time, in 1822, the first segregated public schools for blacks opened in Philadelphia. In 1824, the country of Liberia on the west coast of Africa was established by freed American slaves. In 1827, John Russworm and Samuel Cornish established the first African-American newspaper called Freedom's Journal. The paper would be circulated in 11 states and in Haiti, Canada, and Europe. Then in 1829, David Walker from Boston would publish his first fiery denunciation of slavery called Walker's Appeal in Four Articles. It would cause a great stir as it basically called for all slaves to revolt against their masters. And finally, in 1830, the Virginia legislator would finally launch the intense debate around the abolition of slavery. Over the next 30 or so years, abolitionism will be debated hotly. Mobs, riots, and political promises will push public opinion into opposite camps and be the driving force in the civil war that erupts in 1861. The second major movement going on at this time was that of women's rights. Starting back in 1769, the colonies would adopt the English system that women could not own property in their own name or keep their own earnings. We may now understand one of the primary forces as to what was prodding the American founders to sign the Declaration of Independence. In 1777, all states had passed a law outlawing women from voting. You'll notice that we're moving in the wrong direction here. It won't be until 1839 that women win their first steps in the right direction. And that year, in Mississippi, women would be finally granted the right to own land in their own names. And in 1848, in New York, 300 men and women would sign the Declaration of Sentiments. It was a plea to end discrimination against women in all spheres of society. Now, the third major movement rolling through the states at this time was the Temperance Movement. If you aren't familiar with it, the Temperance Movement was, and is, a movement to curb the consumption of alcohol. In the early 1800s, Americans drank a lot of alcohol. Just to give you an idea, it's estimated in 1792 that the average American drank two and a half gallons of alcohol a year. By 1810, that number had reached four and a half gallons. And finally, in 1823, Americans were drinking on average seven and a half gallons of alcohol a year. 
That is the highest rate of consumption in U.S. history and over three times today's current consumption rate. People noticed it too. James Finley, a Methodist revivalist, noted as he wrote his circuit in Ohio that not only was alcohol used as a disease preventative, but that it was also regarded as a necessary beverage. A house could not be raised, a field of wheat cut down, nor could there be a log rolling, a husking, a quilting, a wedding, or a funeral without the aid of alcohol. All classes of people were given to heavy drinking, ministers included. One ex-senator indicated in 1837 that he had been for several years the last survivor of nine resident lawyers in Cincinnati in 1796, all the rest of them having become drunkards and dying early. It was frequently said that Americans were slaves to the vice of drinking. So, early in the 1830s, a flurry of temperance reforms appeared. Now, it should be noted that these reforms were initially kindled as philanthropic movements and not religious ones. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and renowned physician, would write up a study called his Inquiry into the Effect of Ardent Spirits Upon the Human Mind and Body. The study went viral, and the movement was slowly caught upon by religious groups around America. Many churchgoers would begin to view drinking as inconsistent with Christian tenets and as an indication of moral depravity. So how was this temperance growth measured? Following the study of Benjamin Rush, the American Temperance Society was created in 1826. Almost immediately, hundreds of state and local auxiliaries sprang into existence, and within a year after the organization of the American Temperance Society, 222 local groups had been formed in 16 states. By 1831, 19 state organizations had been established in all but five states, and 2,200 local societies had been organized, with a membership approximating 170,000 people. Two years later, the number of local organizations had increased to 5,000, with a total membership of 1.25 million people. By 1830, throughout the nation, more than 50 distilleries had been stopped, and more than 400 merchants had renounced the traffic, and more than, quote, 1,200 drunkards had ceased to use the drunkard's drink, end quote. Individual states also produced statistics which indicated that liquor traffic was losing the respectability of former times. This temperance movement was in full swing. By the 1830s, Ohio was deeply rooted in temperance, with the governor Robert Lucas also being the leader of Ohio's temperance chapter. At this time, many religious groups also spoke strongly against alcohol, with the Quakers, a group we've mentioned a few times in this podcast, having quit alcohol entirely. Schools and universities popped up and were founded on temperance principles. Newspapers began to help the spread of temperance reforms by publishing long articles and providing editorial comment on the movement. The Painesville Telegraph, a local paper in Ohio, was read by many early Mormons and frequently published articles on the dangers of intemperance. In November of 1832, the Ohio Telegraph noted that several leading citizens were indifferent to the movement because it was associated with sectarianism and urged all individuals, sects, and groups to unite in the temperance cause. Finally, in the mid-1830s, Sylvester Graham would gain some notoriety by piggybacking the temperance movement and also calling for a prohibition on tea, coffee, tobacco, opium, and every other form of artificial stimulant and narcotic. Needless to say, at this time in America, and especially on the frontier, 
Temperance was a big talking point. So, enter Joseph Smith and the Mormons. In the same year, 1830, that the Mormons were moving to Kirtland, Ohio, the Kirtland Temperance Society was formed. Andrew Crary, a resident of Kirtland in this era, stated that the society was both active and influential and prospered beyond the expectation of its most sanguine advocates. The Kirtland Distillery, which had existed since 1819, was closed for want of patronage by February 1, 1833. That was approximately four weeks before Joseph Smith announced the revelation of the Word of Wisdom. So now we've finally arrived. Today's object is the Word of Wisdom. So what is the Word of Wisdom? In January of 1833, Mormon men were being called to preach the gospel across the United States and gather the converts back to Ohio. Many of these missionaries were recent converts themselves. So to prepare them for the work, Joseph Smith created what he called the School of the Prophets. The men were to meet on the second floor of the Newell K. Whitney store every morning after breakfast, where the men were then instructed by Joseph Smith himself. The room that they met in was very small, and the classes were attended by an average of about 25 people. Brigham Young attended this school and would write that the first thing the men would do was sit down and light up a pipe and begin to talk about the great things of the kingdom and puff away. Brigham commented that after a few hours, the clouds of smoke were so thick that the men could hardly see Joseph Smith through the haze. Once their pipes were smoked out, the men would then put a chew on one side of their mouth, or perhaps on both sides, and spit it all over the floor. In this dingy setting, Joseph Smith attempted to teach the men how they and their covenants could become holy and without spot and worthy of the presence of God. So, take that setting that I've just described in the School of the Prophets and place it up against the temperance movement background. We don't know for sure if any leading Mormons at the time were members of the Kirtland Temperance Society, but I'm sure they were aware of the movement. After hours of lessons each day, the men would then clear out of the School of the Prophets. The room had to be cleaned as it was Joseph Smith's translation room. To whom was left that thankless task? Joseph's wife, Emma. According to Brigham Young, no amount of scrubbing the floor could make it look decent. Emma voiced her concern to Joseph. Not only was this environment dirty, it seemed unsafe. So let me pause the story of the Word of Wisdom for just a minute and talk about how much I love that this revelation came about because Joseph Smith and his wife Emma were talking about the result of these men chewing and smoking in a crowded room. The role of Mormon prophets isn't just to translate old scripture and dictate what they think God was thinking then to current people today. It's to take everyday things that are going on in people's lives and to receive revelation about how God wants them to approach those today. Joseph and Emma having this discussion up against the background of the temperance movement is how Mormon prophets lead the Mormon church today. So back to the story. Joseph Smith took this to the Lord, and days later he received a revelation that's been recorded and called the Word of Wisdom. The Word of Wisdom is now canonized scripture, and it's found in the Doctrine and Covenants section 89, and is accepted as scripture by the Mormons. It was first announced by Joseph Smith on February 27, 1833. The name Word of Wisdom is taken from the first verse of the Revelation, which reads, quote, A word of wisdom for the benefit and counsel of high priests, assembled in Kirtland, and the church, and also the saints in Zion, end quote. So what does the word of wisdom say? 
The revelation can be logically broken down into six main divisions. Number one, it is not good for man to drink alcohol. Number two, tobacco is not good for man. Number three, hot drinks are not good for man. Hot drinks are interpreted by church leaders to mean coffee and tea. Number four, herbs and fruits are ordained for the healthy nature and use of man, and they are to be used with prudence. Number five, the flesh of beasts and fowls is to be used sparingly by man. And finally, number six, all grain is ordained for the use of man and of beasts and to be the staff of life. You'll notice the word of wisdom isn't just a list of things not to do, but it's also a list of things that you should do. You should eat healthy foods. You should eat healthy things. Now, unlike the temperance movement that threatens sickness and the dangers of drunkenness if not followed, the word of wisdom did the opposite for the Mormons. It doesn't threaten them about what will happen if you consume those things. It promises you blessings if you will obey this revelation. So how was the word of wisdom received by the Mormons at that time, and how does it work in the church today? According to one missionary that was attending the school of the prophets, when Joseph Smith first revealed the word of wisdom to them, the brethren, quote, all arose and threw their pipes into the fire immediately, end quote. However, for the next few decades, the word of wisdom took time catching on. Most of the brethren had to be weaned off of their tobacco addictions with licorice root. Tea and coffee, however, were to be quit immediately if you wanted to remain a Mormon. Alcohol would continue to take some time to be dropped. Most Mormons initially thought the word of wisdom was just a warning against drunkenness, whereas the occasional drink was probably okay. It wouldn't be until 1834 that the Mormon leaders would resolve that, quote, no official member in the church is worthy to hold an office after having the word of wisdom properly taught him, and he, the official member, neglecting to comply with and obey it, end quote. The word of wisdom won't make its way across the ocean until 1837. Heber C. Kimball of the Quorum of the Twelve would record that it was almost universally attended to by the brethren. By 1838, most Mormons in Ohio and Missouri found not obeying the word of wisdom would be disfellowshipped from the church. Now, for our purposes, we should note that after Joseph Smith dies, I know, major spoiler alert, Brigham Young takes up the mantle of leadership and directs the Mormons to move west to the unsettled territory of Utah. During the trek, Brigham Young cared less about adherence to the word of wisdom and more about general faithfulness and callings and assignments. It wouldn't be until December of 1850 that Brigham Young and the new leadership would meet together in Utah to pray about the word of wisdom and conclude to renew it fully. Starting in 1901, it was determined that Mormons that didn't obey the word of wisdom wouldn't be kicked out of the church, but that habitual breakers of the commandment wouldn't be allowed to worship in the temple. Whereas the temperance movement would eventually kind of lose its steam, Mormons would stick to this commandment to the present day. Now there is hardly a book, article, or story written on the Mormons where it doesn't comment on the fact that they abstain from alcohol, tobacco, and other substances. In 1980, the University of California, Los Angeles, decided to commence a study on the benefits of the Word of Wisdom. They would track the lives of California Mormons for more than 25 years. And the result? UCLA found that Mormon men and women had some of the lowest death rates ever reported for any group followed for that long of a time. Mormon women in the study had a life expectancy of more than 86 years, five years longer than comparable women overall. Men lived to an average of more than 84 years, which was almost a decade longer than average men. So where can you see a copy of the Word of Wisdom? The original manuscript is located at the Mormon Church History Library. 
though you can see an exact replica at the Joseph Smith Papers website. It covers one entire page and you can read it entirely, if you can still read cursive. If not, ask one of your neighboring Mormons about it. They don't hide from it and seem proud of the fact that their healthy lifestyle will outlive most everybody else. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this quick break-in episode on the Word of Wisdom. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joe, H-O-M-C, historyofmormonchurch at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media or leave me a review on iTunes. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening.